Thank you for singing out. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 9, and we want to talk today about life's most important goal. Life's most important goal from Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Now, I'll be frank, it's always difficult to preach after an evangelist has come. Um, just the way it is. So you pray for me today, and I'll try not to be uh, fancy. Just preach the Word of God. And uh, tomorrow, by the way, is Labor Day. Tomorrow is Labor Day. Uh, we celebrate the American labor, the work that has made America possible. Labor Day sort of marks, for many people, the end of summer. Uh, I know school year has already begun for many students, but many for many more students, school is going to begin this week. And so sometimes we think, okay, it's time to get to work. Summer was a vacation time, and summer was a different season, and now we're back to fall. We're going to get to work. So over the next couple of weeks, I do want to talk about uh, uh, a series of sermons that the series I've entitled, Let's Get to Work. Let's Get to Work. But if we're going to get to work, I want you to be motivated by the right things. Uh, there are a lot of people that do work uh, just to get paid. They do work just to stay out of trouble. They do work because they don't know what else to do. Uh, and I don't want it to be like that for you. So we're going to talk today about knowing and understanding God. Please follow along as I read out loud Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Jeremiah 9, 23 says, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Notice again the first half of verse 24. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. That's going to be the focus of our message. And I want us to serve God because we know who He is. We understand Him, we love Him, and we serve Him out of our love for Him. Father, thank You for this morning. Again, I thank You for those that have made it a priority to be here, and they're here. Uh, they could have slept in, they could have spent the day with friends, they could have gone to the park, maybe they have a boat, they could have gone out on the water, and yet they thought it was more important to be here to worship You, to sing Your praises, to meet with their brothers and sisters in Christ, and to hear Your Word preached. Bless them for that. I pray, Father, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me a, a great boldness in preaching the truth to my sisters and brothers in Christ and cause us to focus, focus us on what is truly important in life, what life's goal is, that we can glory in understanding and knowing you. And we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You might have heard of this term, the religious nuns, and this is not N-U-N-S, Catholic uh, ladies who go into a convent. This is N-O-N-E-S, religious nuns, people who say they have no religious affiliation. They're not, uh, they're not Catholic, they're not Protestant, they're not Muslim, they're not Jewish, they're the religious nuns. And I understand that in the last about 30 years, the percentage of Americans who say they have no religious affiliation... They're not atheists, by the way. They're not anti-religion. That's another group entirely. But just people who say, you know, I'm not, not anything. I think there might be a God. Maybe there is. Maybe he's, you know, I'm just sort of, 
I'm just not affiliated with any religious group. That, that percentage of Americans who claim to be religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, has grown from 5% to about 30%. It's a really huge swath of our society. And in fact, my guess is if you work with any significant number of people, you're going to have a few that are, are atheists, uh, or at least God deniers. And then you're going to have a few that are um, religious. Uh, they may be Mormon. They may be Protestant. They may be Baptist. They may be Lutheran. I mean, there's a lot of different stripes they may be. But you're going to also have a group of people at your workplace. They just, religion doesn't play a role in their life. They're not anti-God. They're not for God. They're just sort of in the middle. And what's amazing about the rise of the religious nuns is that many of them our people, our, our adults now, but when they were children, when they were teenagers, they grew up in church. I don't know if you know this. They, they grew up in church. It's not as if they have nothing, they know nothing about God. It's not as if they know nothing about the Bible. They, they actually sat in a Sunday school class. They learned the stories about Abraham and Moses and Jesus stilling the water when there was a great storm on the sea. And they learned about Paul and his missionary journeys. And they know all this stuff. But they have chosen as adults to be religiously unaffiliated. One fellow was telling his story in a, a well-known newspaper. Mentioned that his father was the assistant pastor of the church when he was growing up. His uncle was the pastor, still is the pastor of this church. But he's come to a place in his own life where, and this is what he said, so between early 2017 and 2020, I went from someone who clearly identified himself as a Christian and attended the same church most Sundays to someone who wasn't sure about Christianity. And so he identifies now as a, as a nun, as a religious nun, N-O-N-E, not N-U-N, right? N-O-N-E, just I don't have any religious affiliation. He says this about his growing up years, and again, I'm quoting him. His name is Perry Bacon. He said, I was never totally, quote, I was never totally confident that there is one God who created the earth or that Jesus was resurrected after he was killed. But belonging to a congregation seemed essential. I thought religion, and not just Christianity, but also other faiths, such as Judaism and Islam, pushed people towards better values. Most of the people I admired, he writes, from Martin Luther King Jr. to my own parents were religious, and I figured I might as well stick with Christianity, the religion that I was raised in. So you understand, he didn't believe that there was a God who created everything. He didn't know that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He didn't think that was a real thing that had happened. But he did feel like religion was a good thing until he became an adult. Now, I want to, I want to talk about uh, this group called religious nuns for just a minute, because you'll see that the message about understanding and knowing God um, uh, is the antidote for this. They call it the great de-churching. I, I get a lot of articles in my inbox about religion, and one of those is the great de-churching, how everyone is qu quitting church. Well, I want to suggest that the reason they're quitting church is because they never had a walk with God that was real and vital to them to begin with. Right. To them, church was just a social club. They, they felt like they should belong. They saw other people in that social club and they, they admired those people and, and they were good with that. But they never had a walk with God. Now, go back to the text again. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. Let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord. That, the Lord there. You notice the Lord is in all cups. That's his name. That I am Jehovah. 
which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. I want you to have a fresh vision. I want you to have a re-energized, reinvigorated vision to know and understand the God who created everything. The God who exercises loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. Before we get to that, though, let's talk about some de dead ends in this uh, effort that we're making in life. Because in verse 23, he gives us three dead ends that, frankly, describe a lot of American society. He says, don't let the wise men glory in his wisdom. Don't let the, the um, uh, mighty man glory in his strength. Don't let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory, glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. Now, we use the glory almost, we use the term glory almost exclusively in religious context. So let me use a different word that has a very similar meaning to this word in the English, and that is brag. That's a word we use a lot. Don't let the wise man brag about his wisdom. Don't let the mighty man brag about his strength. Don't let the rich man brag about his riches. Now, what does it mean to brag? Well, first of all, if you've ever met a braggart, someone who brags, you've noticed they like to talk. You've never met a silent bragger. I mean, we, they like to talk. They have something to say about their athletic ability or about how smart they are or about how much money they have. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit covert, like the guy who drives up to you, right, in a, just a beautiful brand new car and says, hey, did you notice my car? <laughs> right, he wants you to notice. He's got money and he can spend it on a set of wheels. Now, what's amazing is because of the credit system in the United States, you cannot have money and have a beautiful car. But they, they want you to think that they're rich. They're bragging. They like to talk about it. And in talking about it, they often make it seem bigger than it is. When I was in uh, elementary school, I was carpooling with this guy, and he was one of these braggarts. And boy, he would tell the most fantastic stories about his father and him riding on a motorcycle, out hunting, going off cliffs and landing it. And I'm thinking, that just didn't happen. <laughs> I know that didn't happen. But he liked to brag about it. And you know, the good thing in hindsight now, I realize, you know, the good thing was he was bragging about his father. He had a huge amount of admiration for his father and his father's ability to drive a motorcycle. And that's a good thing to admire one's father. But braggarts, they like to talk about it. They like to make it bigger than it is. And boy, don't they get excited when they're talking about it. As soon as you try to change the subject to something else, they lose their excitement. Until they can talk about what they want to talk about again. And boy, then are they so excited. What are some things that people brag about? Well, wisdom. Let me give you some other synonyms for wisdom. They brag about their intelligence. They brag about their brains. They brag about their smarts. They brag about how, uh, uh, how, much, how much they know. Sometimes we call them a know-it-all. God says, don't brag about your intellect. Don't brag about how smart you are. Don't brag about your wisdom. A lot of people brag about their might or their strength, but let me, let me give you a different word here. They brag about their athletic ability. We love athletes in the United States. You know how I know that in general, maybe you don't, but in general, Americans love their athletes? Look how much we pay them. <laughs> Look at how much money they make to throw a ball through a round piece of metal. And we get so excited when they win a championship. Now let me ask you, just let me ask you, who won Super Bowl 10? 
we don't even remember now. But some of you were alive during Super Bowl X and you were so excited because your team won! We get so excited about our team. We brag about how they're going to win this year, how they've done, you know, they've won 10 games in a row. They, they beat last year's champions. We love to brag. God says, don't brag about that. Of course, we love to brag about our money. Now, I'll be, I'll be frank. If, I, if you want to give me money, I will take all the money you will give me, okay? <laughs> I am not against money. I like money. Money is helpful. I mean, we can accomplish things with money. So I'm not against money, but God says, don't brag about your money. Now, let me give you three reasons. They're not here, but just three reasons quickly why we shouldn't brag about our smarts or about our strength or about our riches. And the first reason is because they're only temporary. They're only fleeting. I mean, you may be smart today, but what happens if dementia hits? You can't control that. And you can lose all those smarts. And I tell you what, when you die and they bury you in the ground, all those smarts are no good to the people who remain. Now, I know and you know that every single person who dies will go on to spend somewhere, spend eternity somewhere. But their smarts and their intelligence that were such a benefit to mankind while they were here on earth, that, that's gone. It's temporary. Your money's temporary. We, we, I, I looked it up. You know, we talk about the richest man today, I believe, is Jeff Bezos. I don't remember. I, I don't remember. I looked it up. I, I looked back. When I was a boy, who was the richest man on earth? John Rockefeller. How many of you remember John Rockefeller? Okay, good. I'm going to ask you about John Rockefeller again, so just a second. John Rockefeller. Between him, though, and Jeff Bezos, there's another half a dozen people, most of whom we don't even remember their names today. Because riches are fleeting. They eventually disappear. The Bible says they have like wings and they fly away. But here's the most important reason why I don't want you <laughs> to boast about your wisdom or about your strength or about your riches. And that's because no amount of wisdom or might or riches that you have compares with God's wisdom and God's might and God's riches. You re realize that they're going to pave the streets of heaven with gold. Amen. They're going to use the gold that we think is so important today. Thousands of dollars an ounce. They're going to take that and they're going to pave the streets with it like we use asphalt. God's riches. God's wisdom. God's strength is so much beyond ours. There's nothing to brag about. So what are we to brag about? What is it that's really truly important in life? What is it that we should focus on if it's not riches and, 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 uh, and might and wisdom. Well, he says this in verse 24 again, let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. Understanding and knowing God is our life's most important goal. Understanding and knowing God is our life's most important goal. Now, I want you to understand right off the, right off the top, before we even get into this, I will and you will never understand everything there is to understand about God. Because God is infinite, and my mind is just this little tiny box. It would be like you asking me, calling me up one day and saying, hey, I'm getting ready to move out of my house, and so I'd like to put a few things in your garage. Maybe your friends have done this to you. I'd like to put a few things in your garage. And I have a garage. I say, great, sure, great. Next thing I know, you're backing up a 26-foot U-Haul. 
I said, no, no, I don't have, well, I told you I was moving out of my house and I just figured you could take all this stuff until I find my next place. I'd say, no, that's too much stuff. It's like having a swimming pool and trying to put the ocean in your swimming pool. It's just never going to fit. So don't misunderstand and think that if you work hard, you're going to have a comprehensive understanding of who God is. That you're going to have an all-encompassing knowledge of who God is. But I want your life's goal to be to understand and to know God. Now, there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. Earlier, I asked you how many of you know John D. Rockefeller. Many of you raised your hand. I've heard the name, too. I think I've even seen a picture. But let me ask you, how many of you were his personal friend? Well, yeah, none of us. In fact, I don't even know anyone who knew him. There's a difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. And there's a huge difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And the difference literally is heaven or hell. Because you can know a lot about God. In fact, a lot of the religious nuns, they have a lot of knowledge about God. They know what the Bible says about God. And they have a concept of who God is in their minds, but they don't know God. And I want to warn you that Matthew 7.22 says this. I'm going to read it to you. You can just write down the reference. Matthew 7.22 says this. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me. It's not only important that you know God, it's even more important that God knows you. That God knows you as his child. That when you get to the pearly gates, and I, I know that's not exactly how it works, but in our American mythology of Christianity, you get to the pearly gates, God says, oh, hey, Scott, you don't even need the name tag. I know who you are. Now you say, well, there's got to be hundreds of millions of Christians. Yeah, there are. But you know what? God knows every single one. In fact, the Bible says he calls the stars by their names. And there are so many stars in our galaxy alone that I could never even hope to know all their names, much less the other galaxies in the universe that God created. God knows every star by name. He certainly knows your name if you're his child. There's a big difference between knowing about God and knowing God. If I can go back to our, 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 our um, initial article written by Perry Bacon, you know, his father was an assistant pastor and his uncle was the pastor of this church and he spent years growing up in that church. He learned, about, uh, he learned a lot about God, but you know what? He never came to know God. And how do I know that? Because number one, he doubted if God created everything and he doubted if Jesus rose from the dead. And you can't know God and God does not know you as his child unless you admit that Jesus Christ died and he rose again. That's absolutely essential to being a Christian. I know a lot of people who will admit Jesus died, that there was a real historical Jesus about 2,000 years ago, the Romans crucified him. They'll say, yep, historical event. What about his resurrection? Well, I'm not so sure. The Bible says that if you believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You must believe in the resurrection in order to be God's child and for God to know you and for you to know God. And a lot of us, 
not all of us, but a lot of us, we grew up in Christian homes. We're, we're second or third generation Christians. And I asked Matt Galvin while he was here, I'm, I'm curious, I asked this question of a lot of people that travel through. I say, is it your experience, is it your experience, Matt, as you travel from church to church, that first generation Christians seem much more committed to serving God than second generation Christians? And he said, yeah, you know, now that you said that, I've noticed that too. And here's why, because for first-generation Christians, at some point, they found out who God was, and they got excited about it. They didn't know who he was. Maybe they knew about him, but boy, when, when they came to find out there was a God who was merciful and a God who loved them, and a God who was ready to save them, they thought, what can I do but give God my life? But you know, they're children, and I include myself, because by the time I was born, my parents were both saved. Myself, as a second-generation Christian, I just sort of grew up in that whole God loves you. And it never seemed all that significant to me until I realized one day God loves me. Now, maybe you think of yourself as a pretty good person and you're not surprised that God loves you. But I realized how desperately wicked I was. And despite my desperate wickedness, God loved me. Despite it. God loved me. This view that we have of God, this understanding we have of God, it colors everything we do in life. It's, it's a, one, one man described it as a controlling view, but that's a hard term to really get your hands around. So let me put it this way. I wear glasses and really I am quite blind without glasses. Right now I cannot read the words back there. I can read these words only because I'm this close. I I can't read. I can't really see faces out in the audience. In fact, sometimes I'm tempted just to preach without my glasses on, right? (laughs) When I put my glasses on, all of a sudden things become much clearer. But maybe you've done this one time. You were without your glasses. You'd set them down to wash your face or whatever. And maybe your spouse has a pair of glasses or a sibling has a pair of glasses. And you picked up the wrong pair of glasses. And you put them on and your mind says to you, okay, now you see clearly. And you're thinking, no, I don't see clearly. (laughs) And if if your eyes are as bad as mine, I can't even see my glasses without my glasses. So I have to put them down in the same, when I'm washing my face, I put them down in the same place. When I go to bed at night, I put them down in the same place. Because if I put them down somewhere else and I get up in the morning, I can't even find them. But as soon as I put my glasses on, boy, everything becomes clear. And I want to tell you, that's what knowing and understanding God is for us, for everyone. If you put on the wrong pair of glasses, life doesn't make a lot of sense. That's why you see increasingly bizarre things going on in our country, because they're wearing the wrong glasses. And they think they know, and they think they understand how life works, but they don't. And as a Christian, you're going to be frustrated with life. You're going to be annoyed with everything that's happening if you refuse to put on any glasses. You've got to understand and know God. If you are going to function in life, if you're going to accomplish God's will in life, this is our controlling view. And because of that, that's why it's our goal. That we would understand and know God. If you view God, let me give you a couple uh, negative examples here. If you view God as condemning and harsh, 
and he's just waiting for you to do something so he can smack you, then guess what? You're going to live with a lot of fear, a lot of worry. God isn't like that, by the way. We're going to get to that in a minute. God isn't like that. But if that's the way you see things, you see it's your controlling view, it's going to temper your response to God. If you view God as distant, and often somebody pointed this out to me recently, and it's, it's usually true. Often we have our view of our father, how our, our biological father, our earthly father treated us, often colors our view of who God is. And maybe you grew up with a father. He was distant. I mean, you knew who he was and he'd say, hi, son. But I mean, really, you just never had any sort of emotional bond with him. You sort of see God as distant. Guess what? You're going to end up a practical atheist. Now, what do I mean by a practical atheist? Well, you've met the, the, uh, the committed atheist. He's not only an atheist, he wants you to be an atheist too. And he's going to constantly attack you and attack your ideas of God. Uh, but, you know, there's not a lot, I don't meet a lot of committed atheists. I meet a lot of intellectual atheists. And that is, in their mind, they're just smarter than you. Yeah. You go ahead. You believe in God. I've progressed intellectually beyond that position. Now, the Bible says that a fool says there is no God. I want you to know that. That's what the Bible says. But in their minds, they're just smarter than you. They don't need to argue with you. They're just smarter than you. That's the intellectual atheist. But you know, I also meet a lot of practical atheists. They say with their mouth, God exists. But you know what their lives tell me? They don't think God exists. Or if he does, he's somewhere so far away that what they do doesn't matter. I had one guy say to me, I don't think God can keep up with everything that I'm doing. I said, well, you don't, you don't understand the God of the Bible then. Because he's infinite. And yeah, I can't keep up with what you're doing, but I'm just a man. God can keep up with what you're doing. God knows the thoughts that run through your head. I don't know the thoughts that run through your head. By the way, I don't want to know the thoughts that run through your head. You don't want to know the thoughts that run through my head. But God knows them. You say, how? There's almost 8 billion people on earth. How, why is he tracking me? He's not just tracking you. He knows the thoughts of all 8 billion of us. You see, if you believe that, and I do, if you understand the God of the Bible, it changes how you respond to him. And that's why it's so important that we make our life's goal to understand and to know God. Why do people grow up in church, grow up in a Christian home, and then later say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not a Christian anymore. I, I've, I, that's a phrase that they will use. I've heard them say that to me. Now, I know and you know that the Bible tells us that our eternal security has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with Jesus. But this is just the words that they use. They say, well, I'm not a Christian anymore. How does that happen? Well, I'm going to uh, uh, hypothesize that most of the time, they never knew or understood who God was. They had a distorted or um, defective, they had a distorted and defective view of God. And so, yes, all of a sudden it says, why am I believing in this man in the sky with a long beard? Uh, again, I, this is not what the Bible teaches, but this, you know, that's what they're saying. Well, I, I can just do my own thing. And they become, even if they don't recognize it themselves, they become practical atheists. Now, there are three things that God tells us to understand and know about his character, that he has loving kindness, that he has judgment, and that he's righteous. But I just want to focus on that word loving kindness today. And the reason I want to focus on God's loving kindness is because the Bible says we love him because he first loved us. And if you can get a hold of the fact that God loves you, 
I mean that God loves you. <laughs> and the other aspects of loving kindness, it will change your response to God. Now, this word loving kindness, it's a long word. It's got loving in it and it has kindness in it. And that's because the Hebrew word has a wide semantic range. I mean, it means a lot of things. Let me just give you some passages. You can write down the address. You can write down the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the book and the chapter and the verse. And then later on, you can look them up. And I want to sh show you how else this word is translated. This Hebrew word is translated so you can understand its wide semantic range. By, by, range. by the way, the, the Hebrew word is chesed, if you want to look it up in a dictionary. But this word for loving kindness is translated in Lamentations 3.22 as mercies. Lamentations 3.22. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. God is a God of loving kindness. He exercises loving kindness. And one aspect of that, there's other aspects, but one aspect is he is a merciful God. You know what Satan wants to tell you? God can't forgive you for that. That's what Satan wants to tell you. You've done something so bad here that God can't really forgive you. That is a lie from Satan. God's mercy is infinite. It's beyond our comprehension. The Bible tells us that when he forgives us, it's as if he casts our sins into the depths of the sea. And you realize that the depths of the sea are deeper than the highest mountain is tall. That's what God does with our sins. It says that he separates us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. Now, how far do you have to go west, this way, west? How far do you have to go west before you start going east again? Well, that's interesting because on a globe, you can go far enough north that you reach the North Pole, and then what happens? You start going south again. But I can go west infinitely and still be going west. If you don't understand that, Scotty's our navigator here. He can explain that to you. But seriously, you can keep going west, and you can just go west for the rest of your life and never go east. Just keep going west, around and around the globe. Now, you go north far enough. Or if you go south far enough and you reach the South Pole, then you start coming north. But east from the west, what is God saying? He can forgive any sin. And when he forgives sin, it doesn't, he doesn't hold, us, hold it against us anymore. We have a merciful God. Now, I have to warn you that even though God forgives you, your, your sin has consequences. And I, I can't, and God will not, usually, he, he's a good God, and sometimes he does amazing things, but I cannot make those consequences go away. pastor friend of mine in Wisconsin was missing three fingers on his right hand. He had his thumb, he had his pointer finger, because he had been in an industrial accident and these fingers had been eaten away. Now, I don't know, I can imagine he prayed, you know, God, would you restore my fingers? But God didn't do that for him. And sometimes you'll have consequences of sin that are going to follow you the rest of your life. But God will give you grace for even that. And don't think that just because you're experiencing the consequences of sin that God is not merciful. God is merciful. He's a God who exercises loving kindness. And one aspect of that is his mercy. But this word also shows up in another very interesting story in 2 Samuel 9.1. In 2 Samuel 9.1, we have the story of Mephibosheth. You remember that from Sunday school, don't you? Here is David. He's become king. And decades previously, when he was not king, he had promised Jonathan that he would look out for Jonathan's descendants. 
Now he's become king. Jonathan is dead. And David says, are there any descendants, children, grandchildren of Jonathan, so that I can show them, and the word in your Bible in 2 Samuel 9, 1 is kindness, that I can show them kindness. And this word kindness is the same word translated loving kindness here which is why they, the translators wisely stuck on kindness to the end of love. Because it's not just love, it's just kindness. Do you realize God wants to be kind to you? Now, we often mess that up because we're running away from God. When I first came to Elmira Baptist Church, I have to be candid here, I wanted to bribe the children to like me. <laughs> and I found out that Pastor Harder often gave them candy. And I found out very quickly, they didn't want to talk to me. I was brand new. They didn't know who this big ogre was. But, they, but if I offered them candy, they would come to me. And I would say to them, you've got to ask, okay, please, can I have candy? Boy, that was the quickest way to get these children to talk to me. But, you know, every once in a while, there's still a child, usually pretty young, pretty small. Whatever reason, I still, I still scare them, and I offer them candy, and they run away. They don't want it. They run to mom, they run to dad, and they hide back there. You know what? We treat God like that sometimes, don't we? Here he's a God of kindness. And he wants to bless us, but we're too busy running away from him. He's a God of goodness. This word is translated goodness in Proverbs 20, verse 6. And interestingly enough, in Nehemiah 13, 14, it's translated good deeds. Nehemiah refers to his good deeds using this word that's translated loving kindness here. So you have love, you have mercy, you have kindness, you have goodness, you have good deeds. You get the idea that God wants to do good things for you. He wants to forgive your sin. He wants to love on you. He wants to be kind. He wants to do good things for you. That's God's loving kindness. Let me put a point on it. This is how much God loved us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. This is the extent to which he loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves everyone in this room, and, and the whole world. God so loved the world. But let's bring it down to a subset of that. God loved the people in this room so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die because we were sinners. And sin has a penalty. And God took that penalty that he should have put on me. And God took that penalty and he put it upon his son Jesus Christ because he's a God who exercises loving kindness in the earth. Do you know that God that exercises loving kindness? Because when we know God, when we know God to be a God who exercises loving kindness, then we love God in return. We love Him because He first loved us. And if you ever need your love for God stoked, if you ever need that, that flame of, of love for God stirred up in you, you just remind yourself how much God loves you. He loved you so much that He gave His Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ took my penalty on the cross. He died in my place. He took the penalty that I deserved. I mentioned at the beginning a series of sermons helping us get back to work, so to speak. Let's get to work. And I want you to work for God because you know who He is and you know Him to be a God who loves you. 
And when you love God, you want to serve him. So many of you mothers love and serve your families sacrificially. You've got little kids. They don't even know all the things you do for them. All they know is when they're hungry, they start crying and all of a sudden food appears. When they spill something and it's a mess, all of a sudden mom's cleaning it up. And your hope is that one day your children will love you. And God's good. My children love me. My children love my wife, love their mother. Doesn't God deserve our love? How much has he provided for us? How many times has he cleaned up after me? So let me give you some applications. Remember, our understanding and knowing God is a controlling view in our life. It should color everything we do. It's, it's putting the glasses on. So if that's true, let me give you some applications. If you arrived at Heaven's Gate today, would God know who you are? Not would you know who God is. Would God know who you are? The Bible says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. If you're a child of God, he knows you. You won't have to go to heaven and say, oh, by the way, you should find my name there somewhere. You ever walked up to a reservation counter at the car rental place or at a hotel? I have a reservation. Here's my name. and the, Your name's not in the system. That never happens with God. That happened to me recently. I'm glad I had the piece of paper. I said, well, funny, this piece of paper says it is. That's never going to happen with God. If you're his child, he knows you. And there's nothing, this is God's loving kindness. There's nothing you can do to ultimately get away from him. You can run. But ultimately, God will get you. He knows who you are. Does God know who you are? As I mentioned, at that great judgment, there'll be many who say to God, look at all the wonderful works we've done in your name. And God will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Don't let that be true of you. Second application I want to make today. If understanding and knowing God is so important, if it's a goal we have in our life, what have you done in this past week to get to know God better and to understand Him more? Now, I know, because often when, when it comes to this type of question, I'm working with someone one-on-one, -on -one, often the, the answer I hear back is, well, I'm really busy. Okay, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. You have to decide what's important. You're never too busy to do what's important. You're, you're too busy to know God because you don't think it's all that important. That's why I entitled this message, Life's Most Important Goal. You've got to make time to understand and know God if you're going to understand and know Him better. I was talking with one of you in the last couple of weeks, and this person had been on a football team when they were in high school. And he said to me, we all agreed as a team we were not going to have girlfriends during the football season. Now that's sacrifice. <laughs> that team went 13-0 and 0 because they were committed and they were willing to give up the things that were not as important to attain what was important to them and that was being the best football team they could be now let me ask you if you want to understand and know God you can make time you'll find time you'll enjoy the time I mean braggarts love to do what they brag about and if you want a glory and understanding and knowing God, you have all the time that you want and that you need. Now, there's one exception to that, and I say this often because it's true. It's those mothers with little tiny children. Your, your time is often not scheduled because you've got little kids. I get that, but most of us don't have little children running around or crawling around or rolling around. We have all the time we need to understand and know God. We just need to do it. 
So let me ask you again, what have you done in this last week to get to know God better? What's happened to you in this last week? What are the events that God brought into your life on Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? What are the events that God brought into your life that he created and designed, put into your life so that you could get to know him better? What did you learn about God's character in this past week? Did you learn that he's always going to provide? Did you learn that he's a forgiving God, that his mercies are new every morning because he's a faithful God? Did you learn that he's a God of truth, that you can trust him when he says something, it's true, and you can bank on it, and you can act on it? What did you learn about God in this past week? Well, again, if you didn't have your glasses on, everything was probably a blur. But let me tell you, if you work to understand and to know God, to glory and understanding and knowing God, His loving kindness, His judgment, His righteousness, then all of a sudden you see, oh, I see God's at work here. And when we understand and we know God, it affects every aspect of our life. There's one that I want to deal with today because it's so dear to us, but that's prayer. Do you, do you realize that your understanding and knowledge of God affects how you pray? So many of us, really, when we pray, we're just telling God what we want. By the way, I think we ought to tell God what we want. I'm not saying we shouldn't. It says, let your requests be made known unto God. So I, I, I'm not saying you should never tell God what you want. But here's the important thing. Have you considered what God wants in your life? Well, what is the purpose of that illness? Now, I, I know you want to get better. I want you to get better. But what is the purpose of that illness? Maybe there's a reason that you're short of cash, that your financial resources don't meet your financial obligations. Now, again, I know what I want. I just want more money. Just provide more resources, Lord. I mean, there's something right now I'm praying for. If I, I said, Lord, if you just give me a little more resources, we could solve this problem. God says, no, I'm not going to solve that problem this way. Well, what does that tell me about God? It doesn't tell me that he can't. My God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the wealth in every mine. I mean, he's going to pave his city streets with gold. Money is not the issue with him. There's something he's teaching me about myself when my financial resources don't meet my financial obligations. How about when someone hurts you? You know, if you don't understand and know God's loving kindness and his mercy and his goodness, when someone hurts you, you pray that God will smite them. God, let them just have it. But you know what? Did God let me have it? When I was in rebellion against him, when I was hurting him. Now, again, there are imprecatory psalms, and one day we're going to get to that, and that's an interesting topic. But do we pray for God to judge our enemies, or do we pray for God to change our enemies? Jesus told us in his Sermon on the Mount that we ought to pray for our enemies. Are you struggling with some addiction? Is there something in your life that keeps some sin that keeps tripping you up? Well, your understanding and your knowledge of God will affect how you pray about that too. It's a controlling view. It's like putting on the glasses and all of a sudden things come into focus. But without the glasses, yeah, there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of annoyance. There's a lot of, God, what are you doing in my life? Let me encourage you to make time this week to get to know God better, to understand who he is. And as we come to the invitation if, you, if God doesn't know you, if you're not 100% sure that you could show up on heaven's door and God would say, yeah, I know you, you're my child, then I'd like to talk, you to talk to you today and take a Bible and show you how you can know your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life. 
because of all the things we've discussed today, that's the most important. Father, thank you for, again, for drawing us together on a, on a holiday weekend to look into your word. And I pray that you'd give me and my sisters and brothers in Christ a greater desire to understand you and to know who you are, to know your loving kindness, to know your judgment, to know your righteousness, to love you because you first loved us, to serve you because we love you, to know how to serve you, to know what, in what manner and what direction to serve you because we know who you are. We understand who you are, not completely, not comprehensively, but as much as your word gives us direction. May we set aside the I'm busy excuse and make time for your word. Make time for prayer. Make time to meet with your people and not be too busy. Father, bless us with a greater burden to know you. Those that are, that are our mature saints, that have a good understanding and knowledge of who you are, point them to saints that need mentoring. They need someone to come along and, and point them in the right direction and encourage them and help them and share their, their wealth of knowledge and share their commitment to you with them. Lord, we pray for this. We ask that you would strengthen our church, make us a church, make us a church, a people that know you and understand you. We pray. And I pray too for those that are here this morning and you don't know them as your child. Your mercy is there. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. Lord, bring them to a place of faith in Jesus Christ this afternoon, we ask in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.